You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Welcome, 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 everybody back to the podcast. I tell you what, today we have a pretty unique podcast and I'll tell you why. We're going to be talking with Nathan Worthington of Alabama who graduated from Auburn, moved to South Carolina to do a fawn mortality rate study and he talks a lot about what he did, what tasks he did for that study, uh, some of the ins and outs, uh, the objectives of that study, and some of the results of that study as well. Uh, and then at the end of that, we get into kind of a mini BS Hunter Profile session. We talk a lot about you know, how he started as a bow hunter, who got him into bow hunting, and then just kind of BS a little bit about uh, what he likes about bow hunting, the experiences, and how he's kind of grown over the last four years uh, of solely hunting with a bow and, and kind of putting the gun down. So it's a really interesting podcast today, and uh, I'm glad Nathan had the time to come on uh, on the podcast because the uh, you know the uh, the the research that these guys did is pretty interesting, and uh, hopefully you guys uh, like what you hear today. Now. We all know that lone wolf tree stands are the best hunting tree stand, especially for the guy who needs to be mobile. Like, I feel we all need to be mobile. And if, you, if you're hunting out of permanent tree stands, yes, there are some times where, you know, a good pinch point tree stand isn't going to move throughout the years. But then there's some times when you need to be very mobile and be in a specific tree and not a tree that fits your tree stand, so to speak. And that's where Lone Wolf Tree Stands comes into play. And I tell you what, what you need to do is if you haven't, you know, bit the bullet and got a Lone Wolf yet, uh, you need to go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers, okay? And 
you go to that website and it will allow you to enter your email address in all right so you enter your email address and then it's going to give you a confirmation that you've done this and by doing that you have entered into a giveaway and you will receive a discount code for $50 off of all orders over $200 and again that's lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers and uh, it'll give you a very good discount on lone wolf products so that's all we got to do for an intro today hopefully all you guys enjoy this podcast and uh, I'm going to tell you right now I enjoyed it I I love listening to the science behind all this stuff and uh, Nathan uh, definitely talks a lot about that but again I'm talking too much here is today's man I don't even know what to call it I'll just call it a BS session with Nathan Worthington all right, everybody, on the phone with me today, Mr. Nathan Worthington. How you doing today, Nathan? I'm doing great. Good, good. So we've had to, like, stop and start this podcast to, to uh, get it to where it needs to be to be right right now. So uh, first off, thank you for being patient. Uh, and uh, how we got to this point today was you sent me an email or a message through Facebook uh, giving a little bit of background about yourself and uh, how you went to school for wildlife science, uh, you live in Alabama and all that stuff. So before we get into why you know what this podcast is about and what we're going to discuss today why don't you tell everybody where you're from specifically and what do you do for a living okay i'm um i'm from alabama i currently live on the warrior river um it's the biggest bend on the warrior river if you were to look at the map uh strategically i have about thirty-two thousand acres directly across the river from me so um that's that's one part that I love about where I live. Um, I did. I went to Auburn University, um, and I received a wildlife science degree there. I spent uh, several years uh, working on um, a research project um, in South Carolina, and um, and then when that kind of got to a point to where there was going to be a little bit of a break, I I decided I wanted to go back to school and get my master's and. Um, I decided that I wanted to teach, and I went into special education, and I currently teach students with multiple disabilities. Gotcha. Okay. So it sounds like you're busy. Yeah, I, I'm busy, but a good busy. Good, good. So let's see here. The first thing I want to I, I want to talk to you about, and this is a, a question that I've uh, that I've asked other guests of this podcast is, with you living in Alabama, why? Why did you choose Auburn over the University of Alabama? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, believe it or not, I was raised an Alabama fan. Right. Um, uh, Auburn has a beautiful campus, wonder, wonderful university, but Auburn is, at least at that time, was the only land-grant college in the state. And so that means that was the only school that would offer the wildlife science degree gotcha that i wanted gotcha so, okay so yeah. did uh did any family members like kick you out try to get you kicked out of the family for going to auburn uh 
Well, fortunately, my mom has degrees for both. Okay. And my dad, um, you know, he was, he was, my dad was a coach and teacher as well. Um, and since I never actually went to any of the football games, I typically uh, would catch the games on night on ESPN, the scores or whatever. After I get done hunting, so okay, um, you know they. I got you. So, so you were more focused on the, you were more focused on the hunting aspect. At that point, I, I did play, um, baseball for a little bit in junior college, but yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hunting has always, hunting and fishing has always been a a priority of mine. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's see here. Um, you went to school for wildlife science, uh, and, you know, obviously it sounds like you have an interest, you know, obviously have an interest in hunting, but what drove you to go to school to get, you know, to start off with a wildlife science degree? Well, um, believe it or not, I never was one of those people that kind of flipped around on majors, you know, like what I wanted to go to school for, different things like that. You know, as soon as at some point in my youth, when I became aware that there was actually a degree to go do a lot of the, you know, wildlife science, which is, um, you know, right up my alley, you know, based off all the time I spend outdoors. Um, but I thought it was, I've always been fascinated by behavior, um, for me, whether it's people behavior, animal behavior, and, uh, I'm always trying to understand why people and animals do the things that they do. So, gotcha. you know, that, that would get down to the core of it. Gotcha. So you've kind of had it, that, that's where your interest lied and, and Auburn offered you, uh, the, the program that you wanted. So you went to Auburn, you got a wildlife science degree. And then after college, what did you do with that wildlife science degree? Yes. Um, I would say the last couple of years, you know, just to kind of lay the foundation when I was at Auburn, it was, it was a very rigorous, you know, for an undergraduate degree. Most people, you know, when they hear that, they think, Oh, maybe he can go be a game warden or something like that. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, a lot of the people that are going to go to veterinarians, veterinary school would actually, you know, take the wildlife science program and then apply. So, you know, it, you know, nobody would have ever, you know, considered me in high school as being, you know, extremely smart, but I was very strong-willed. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I battled through there, but, you know, it was just sheer will. Yeah. And I am going to answer your question. But what I mean by that is before I even graduated, there was always opportunities, you know, whether it was a professor or whatever, saying, oh, well, we need somebody to volunteer to go over here and work, you know, to help with this research project or work and help here. And, you know, it, I got to participate in um, trapping deer. And a lot of that, you know, this was while I was still in college, you know, dealt with, uh, we got to use thermal cameras and we'd sit up all night and I'd go to school during the day and we'd use thermal cameras and, and uh, cannon nets, which... You know, I mean, I absolutely love doing that. And, you know, we <laughs> we got to do all kind of different things like that. So, actually, for what I did after school, started before I finished in that, you know, the, the professors and anybody that could see that, you know, I had this burning passion 
to do stuff and I didn't care what it was you know it could have been the smallest thing or the biggest thing but um you know I would say that was my strength so when it got before I even graduated uh you know one of my professors approached me and uh he said well we've got a a 10-year research fawn mortality study going on it it's and I'll mention it it's Norfolk Southern Railroad has some property in South Carolina and um he said would you be interested in going out there and participating you know and working and I was like oh I would love it so you know that that got me in the door for you know after graduation and you know I didn't even go to the you know my actual graduation I was already going to South Carolina you know <laughs> and um and you know it, it was awesome um and what I mean by that is you know we had a truck set up with thermal cameras you know you'd have two people in the back but the whole point of the, the study was to look at fawn mortality. And so, you know, we would go and at night we would, you know, as soon as the fawns start dropping for the most part, uh, we would ride every night with the thermal cameras, you know, through about roughly 12,000 acres. And um, we would go and catch fawns, which can be pretty interesting. Uh, we had some different strategies, but, you know, just spending time you know, out there and observing and watching, that's what I love. Like, right. my passion is, you know, because, you know, like the professors and stuff that, you know, their their names are on the research and stuff like that. You know, they're the ones that do all the writing. But I love being out in the woods, collecting the data and learning the different things. And, right, um, right. So... Yeah, so it sounds like it was a seamless transition from what you were already doing in college to what you went into uh, on this uh, this research project. Now, what are you know this fawn mortality rate? Whenever you're doing a study, there has to be clear objectives that you're trying to you know reach. What were some of the objectives that you were, I guess, that you guys were focused on on this uh, uh, fawn mortality research? Okay, so as far as the objectives is, um, you know, to study this particular site was a very highly managed location. And what I mean by that, they managed the predators at a high level. They kept, as far as the hunting of white-tailed deer and stuff like that, they kept immaculate records. Gotcha. I mean, you could almost envision the best-case scenario. So the objective was to see what the the mortality rate was in a very highly managed piece of property. So when we would catch the fawns, we would uh, radio collar them. We would, uh, you know, put different um, tags in their ears. We'd weigh them. We'd do all those things, you know, collect the gender. And then, you know, to reduce stress on the fawns, you know, we had a certain amount of time that we needed to be able to do that. Gotcha. To reduce stress. But we, when we would go, it's almost like the radio telemetry that we use is, you know, it's still holding the wand at that time. And during the day, we would go and check on them and see, you know, if they had a mortality beep, it was a different signal than one that had been moving. So let's say we went in and we had a mortality beep. When we got there, you know, it was to determine the cause of death. So the objective was you know, to, to collect data on farm mortality and, um, you know, just 
you know, once you get that, you see, you know, is how, you know, which predators does it appear or, um, you know, how many, uh, fawns are the predators taken? How many, how much of it is natural mortality? So, um, after about 10 years of that, um, and everybody can, you know, go and they look it up or they can read it. You know, Dr. Ditchkoff was, if you put his name and fawn mortality in South Carolina in there, it'll, it'll pop up and you'll, um, that was whenever people that, you know, were out there reading, you'll start hearing about coyotes. Right. So and, you did, um, you did this for how many years? I participated in that as far as the fawn research part of it for about two years. Okay. I did go back and volunteer for a third, but at that point I was getting my master's. Gotcha. All right. So, you know, you put a collar on and you radio them and you know you're collecting this data you know like the, the their weight and whatnot but you know then you you the i guess they're the signal that comes back is telling you whether they're active or whether they're dead right supposedly supposedly yes okay all right so talk to us a little bit about you know how that whole process works you know you, you come up to the property and you you start you know you start wanding the area looking for a radio signal and you find one that has a i guess a mortality signal coming from it walk us through what happens from that point to when you walk up onto the the fawn whether it's dead or alive okay so um depending on how many fawns we have radio collared at that time you know, you're driving through there, you're checking out because you have a different uh, number for each fawn. And you go through there, and let's say you get a mortality signal. At that point, you obviously, you know, you've got to have your gear. You've got to have your cameras and, you know, different things to document everything. And it's always interesting. Um, let's say you, you're, you're getting the beeps, Will. Um, as you use your the radio telemetry, you're constantly uh, turning it. And uh, it almost reminds me of the old rabbit ears on, on the TVs as far as getting the signal. But once you get headed in the right direction, you know, the beep will get stronger and stronger, and you'll see the signal. And um, typically, if it was a natural mortality, um, for the most part, you're going to be able to visually find that fawn. And um, the ones that were always interesting was if a bobcat had gotten a fawn, um, most of your cats will cache their prey. Right. Yep. And why that makes that interesting is they bury it. And um, we spent more than one occasion in giant briar patches over our heads trying to figure out where right. a bobcat has buried a fawn. So that's always interesting. So bef- before um, we move on to the, that part is, okay, so you determine what the cause of death is. And you, when you say natural causes – how do you determine what is a natural cause and what are some of those natural causes that you, uh, that you found while doing this study? Okay. Um, you know, that can be a very, um, it depends kind of question, but some of the things are, you'll just straight up see a fawn that's malnourished. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's typically, um, you know, within those that first 
month and a half because uh, one of the things that the research did end up showing was that once a fawn, the fawns reach a certain age and size, that um, they're more likely to be able to um, evade predators and different things. But typically, that natural mortality you'd actually see pretty early on, but you'll see a malnourished um, fawn, and I mean it. It appeared to be pretty much. I mean, you can tell you just see bones, different yeah. things like that, and um, and then some of the other things would be, uh, and you'll have to forgive me for the name, but sometimes um, food um, when they're eating or you know like stuff gets impacted in their gums, mm-hmm. and one of the signs of that is like their jaws. Gotcha. And the gum lines will be really swollen. You know, we didn't see that very often, but um, you know those. A lot of, some of it was a process of elimination, but, you know, I did recent, more recent research that they went into extreme detail in that. Um, but, you know, typically, you know, natural mortality, you're not going to see a whole lot of damage but for us because we were checking the fawn so frequently. Like, you know, the predators, scavengers, and stuff like that would not have the majority of the time gotten to them because we're checking the fawns so frequently does that make sense yeah yeah okay so on this malnourishment is that because the mother is not providing or is not giving them the milk they need or is it other types of diseases that are causing them not to uh, express the mother's milk yeah that's um once again, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, and, you know, I wish I could be more specific in that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, it could be all of the above. Gotcha. And that, um, you know, because you can even look in domesticated animals and it's that, you know, for the animals to get that colostrum right off the bat, you know, because it has all the different things that they need to help them, you know, right. get that start. Right. And um, that is a really big deal. And, you know, if that fawn doesn't, you know, get that, then, um, you know, that would probably be one of the most likely gotcha. causes. Gotcha. But, you know, you could probably do a research study right. on right. just that alone. Okay. So now moving into not like, let's say, a death by, by predator. Um, you okay. said, you said, you got into the bobcat a little bit and how they they kill it um did you find that there was one animal specifically that uh i guess was responsible for the highest fawn mortality rate from a predator um i believe in in this research front um project and you know over the years um the coyote Okay. Um, you know, from all the data and stuff, appeared to make a, you know, a substantial, um, you know, impact right. um, on on the uh, on the fawns. But something to keep in mind is that this was a highly managed right. Right. property that was trapped very heavily. And following this research, they did another fawn study and more of a what would what you would consider a 
you know, poor quality habitat, right? Not very well managed. So that you know, that's a good comparison. So yes, the coyotes made an impact still, even though that you know all the predators and stuff were being trapped. But their impact at the other research site where management and the habitat was poor, the mortality rates for the fawns were extremely higher. Right. Significantly higher. Uh, just on numbers alone, right? But from like a, an overall percentage, the coyote still, you know, was responsible for the highest percentage of fawn mortality on both locations? Uh, to my recollection, gotcha. I, you know, I don't know the, the, you know, the other site, the details as well as I do the one that I participated. But there is a side note that I would like to add, um, if you would. Yeah allow me to do that um something that a lot of people i don't think i've talked about you know everybody's about oh the coyote the coyote um and you know this is my personal opinion opinion based off my experience um and just bear with me like domestic dogs i'm not talking about your dogs that you know stay on the porch yeah i'm talking about um because we did have one section of the property where, you know, you would get a group of dogs and they would get a specific route that they run through. And because they, they were so consistent in going through that specific area, um, you know, it's my opinion that they make, they can within that area make an impact on the fawn mortality and, you know, not only with that study, but with some other personal experiences that I've observed over the years. Gotcha. Coyotes, the way that they hunt and, you know, the way that they live, they have such large home ranges. And typically when they go through an area, it's kind of like a wave. Right. If that makes sense. Like yeah. you might have a thousand acres over here and you haven't had a whole lot of fawn mortality. And then all of a sudden, you know, you'll have three or four fawns in that area like overnight. And they'll come through in a wave, and it might not be, you know, it might be a, a, you know, a while before you would get that other wave. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the big things to keep in mind with this fawn research study is, you know, once those fawns reached a certain point, um, whether it was six weeks or eight weeks, their ability, you know, the probability of them being able to be recruited to that year's population once they reach that certain size and age was extremely higher right they're so vulnerable from birth up to you know i have to go back and look but like six to eight weeks gotcha to so many things whether it's natural mortality predators but um that was just something that i was so basically every people. day that they're alive it, it's it's greater for them you know, is is just one step closer to increasing their the, the their survival rate. Yes. Okay. All right. Now I want to talk to you, I want about those dogs. Were these like farm dogs that were running this area, or and what just chasing down deer and killing them, or like, were these like when you say domesticated dogs, were these like somebody's pets that were just running around the woods? Well, you know, we did have particular parts you know and you're talking about 12,000 acres so yeah their impact was minimal but the areas where we did have houses and you know for whatever reason you would 
you would get a couple group of dogs and you know they kind of get that little pack mentality right and they would have that particular route you know that where they would just pound that area over right. and over right and typically when a domestic dog you know when they go through there and they kill some type of animal it you know this is not exact science but typically you can tell that they've messed with it but it's almost like they don't know what to do with it right where right. when you find signs of a coyote having got stuff you've got bones spread out all over the place right right and typically domestic dogs it's almost like they've they've got it and they've done a few things but you know they they're almost killing it because of the chase right you know they haven't returned back to that we've got to devour everything right so it's almost like a game to them yeah uh, you know that would be you know in my opinion the best explanation for that right okay so now now backing up a little bit um you know you mentioned you're you know you get to the carcass and you determine what the cause of death was um at the, at that point what are you specifically what are you doing to determine that cause of death okay you're just saying when i first walk up here yeah you, and you know, you know first you, of all understand that um i was not alone i had a lot of great people that helped me right 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 but um our we would go up there um you know, we would start taking pictures. Um, we would start recording everything um, that we could see and observe. And we would document it because, like anything, you know, the more experience you get, the better you get at doing right. it. But sometimes you still have to go back and and look at everything and then look at the pictures and, you know over time you know when you you know when you get enough data to compare it then um you can make a you know a determination but like like i said with the domestic kind of dogs typically you'll get you know you can see where they've kind of chewed on it and mouthed it and done different things like that the bobcats will cash it and the coyotes it'll pretty much just be bones where they've scattered it everywhere you know just in my experience and then the natural mortality the majority of the time you're looking at a malnourished right, right. animal that um, for the most part does not have any signs of trauma okay and then you just you document all of that right yes do you do any additional tests like on uh, any part of the carcass uh, do you weigh it or, or take any additional measurements of uh, I don't know like the body once we go up to it and we're looking at a you know a fawn that's dead. Is yep. that what you're talking about? Yep. Are you talking about prior? Yep. After you um, find it dead. Yeah, I I do I do not um I feel like we did not, you know, weigh them or anything like that. Gotcha. Um we you know, we did have a checklist but I don't think uh weighing them once we found them or, you know, doing any type of autopsy. Or measurement, um, like measuring yeah. the the head or a jawbone or a spine or anything like that. No, uh, because you know we had the data capture, and then you know like if we had you know been tracking it every day that we tracked it, we monitored it and stuff like that. So, you know, um, you know for this particular research study, no, we did not do that. Gotcha. Okay. 
So I guess what, you know, this is kind of a vague question and I'll let you answer it however you want, but while you were there, and I know that research went on for a while, even after you, but while you were there, what did that study, I guess, teach you or what were the results of this study on this fawn, on fawn mortality? Um, well, I'll answer the very last part of the question. As far as when you're talking about science, you know, it, you, you think back to the scientific method right. and everything's a theory until it can be replicated. Right. So, um, you know, some people prior to this had tried um, something similar to this in Texas. But due to the habitat and things like that, it was difficult to get a very large sample size. Okay. Um, this particular place in South Carolina, the, hab- the habitat was, you know, well managed. You know, this was a um, habitat that they use fire very regularly. So when you're, you know, if you can picture driving through the woods at night with a thermal camera, you know, your odds of being able to find a fawn bedded are much higher than, you know, trying to go somewhere where it's thick and gnarly and, you you know, you can't spot them. Right. So, yes, this was a research project where I was on a small part and there were people, you know, they'd worked on it years before, they had worked on it years after. But the great thing about this is it provided a lot of data. Uh, it provided um, a very site-specific location and this was the results over you know a, you know a fairly long period right so you know what as far as the you know within the science community what this offered is you know for following people to come back do their research and to see if it could be replicated or in the case of the other site that was in a poor habitat compare the mortality to you know habitat that's poorly managed versus highly managed so you know there's a lot of ramifications what did i take away from this experience well the wonderful part of being you know the opportunity that i was given was not only was i working on um the foreign research study you know i spent a lot of time guiding hunters and spent a lot of time um you know trapping uh you know pigs and you know one of the i think you know, I guess if I'm, you know, being a little selfish, um, you know, because we also got to do different surveys as far as population surveys, sex ratios. We got to use thermal cameras. We got to use spotlight stuff. And this place had such meticulous records that you could sit there and they would pull a jawbone. And, it, and if that deer had been tagged or radio collared, you know, the little um, chips that your pets get in their ears? Right. That, like, let's say they show up at the vet. Well, let's say they lost their ear tag, you know, all that. Well, you could still scan it. And let's say you aged that jawbone, you know, based off how you were taught. You could actually go back if it had the chip in the ear and see if you were right. Right, right. Does that make sense? So a lot of I learned so much more than just the research. Right. But the very best thing that I think I learned was working with some very incredible people that were way smarter than me. Right. But being able to use the thermal cameras and to spend that much time at such a 
amazing place. I got to observe deer being deer. Right. I mean, just imagine driving down the road at night and you're sitting there and the deer are bedded or you're watching them with the thermal cameras and those different things. It ties back into that behavior. So like, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people miss out on and I've missed out on is not spending enough time watching deer being deer. Right. Because you could go down a road and be, uh, you know, because thermal cameras for the most part work best at night, but like, let's say it's right before dark or still real, just breaking daylight and you don't see any deer, but you look over there at the thermal camera and there's, you know, there's a, you know, a buck bedded 20 yards off the road and you cannot see him. And he's laying with his chin down on the ground and you're going right by him. Right. And, you know, like, if we ever had to stop for something, you watch how that deer responded. Like, to me, those are the things that I learned. Yes, predators have an impact. Um, In this particular place, you know, it was almost a baseline since it was a highly managed place. Right. And compared to the vast majority of places, this place, yes. This was the mortality rate from predators. This was the natural mortality rate. Yes, all those things are wonderful, great experiences. But what I learned the most was spending time out there and watching the behavior. Right, right. So uh, if you can remember this uh, data, uh, the – the years that you were there, can you give us an act like a number or a percentage of, you know, this percent of fawns died each year in that study? Um, I can tell you what I remember. I know our goal was always to try to catch about 50 fawns, okay. you know, every season when they dropped, um, uh, you know, and shame on me for not bringing the, the um you know where it was published and reading all that but uh if if people want to find it and they want to read it like i said if you'll just um look up dr ditchkoff auburn university you know uh fond mortality studies south carolina any of that's going to bring it up and it's it explains it really well um but i you know and i apologize for not you know remembering the specifics on that gotcha okay so you know, with this research, you know, obviously you said you learned or you were able to watch deer just being deer, right? Um, yes. So what specifically were you able to take away from doing this research, doing, you know, doing this job and transition that over into your hunting and how you, how, what you learned from this study helped you in the timber as far as hunting was concerned? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, the first part that I learned is that when you work in 15 and 16 hours a day, you know, South Carolina, the part of South Carolina I was in, their gun season comes in August 15th and does not go out till December 31st. Wow. So if you're guiding hunters and you're doing this 15 and 16 hours a day, it's incredibly hard to find time to hunt. <laughs> um, so, you know, unfortunately... Um, and selfishly, as much as I loved that, um, I knew that I was not going to be very happy. Even though I could spend all that time out there being a part of it, 
you know, I still enjoyed fishing and hunting. And, um, and also to be honest, the, the part of the wildlife science, the, the part that I enjoyed that behavior, that research being out in the field, it's not a very steady income. It's kind of seasonal and it's very difficult to make a living. Right. And while I was there, there was also a lot, some things that I learned that I could have done to make a living, but you know, morally and ethically for me. Um, when I go to bed at night, I want to be able to, to agree and to be on the same page with what I'm doing. And I knew that, you know, for me to pay the bills and to be happy with the decisions that I made, that um, at that time, it was going to be best for me to go back to school and and see if I couldn't find a job to where I had a little more time to hunt and fish, but also something that I could be proud of when I went home at night. Okay. Okay. Um, so what was the, I guess, what in in North Carolina, or uh, excuse me, was it, yeah, South Carolina, in South Carolina, in the area that you were doing this study, what was the deer population like? Was it, uh, was it a big deer population? I know that um, this was ma- this property was manicured, you know, highly manicured. But uh, in in the the area, maybe including that, even maybe even outside of that, what was the deer population like? Um, and this is a relative. Um, you would consider it very high, um, even though they had a very long hunting season. Right. Um, and compared, you know, when everything's relative, you, you can take the state of Alabama and somebody can say over here that, the you know, the deer density is very low. And then you go over here and it can be very high. Right. Um, I would say the very well manicured property, you know, deer density was very high, but also they had all their needs and that they needed were there. But even the surrounding properties in comparison, you know, you would not have problem. If you spent some time, you know, like an afternoon or a morning, it was more likely that you were going to be able to see a deer than you weren't. Right. Okay. Um, all right. Cool. So kind of getting back to like going all the way back when you were a kid, uh, kind of changing gears here a little bit. Um, did you come from a, a family that enjoyed hunting and uh what you know the outdoors hunting and fishing and all that stuff well i love this question um because this this should give hope to a lot of people out there um my my dad was not a hunter um he was a you know a coach high school coach and teacher actually all my family both of my parents and my sister are educators but my dad was not a hunter. You know, he would fish a little bit. Um, my mom, some of her brothers were hunters. But, you know, they were more, you know, maybe like every once in a while kind of around. Right. So, and uh, we moved a lot growing up. Uh, my parents were divorced. So I was kind of like this. I wouldn't say, you know, I was kind of a city kid. Yeah. You know, I was I was a little boy that was in the city, but still had the love of the outdoors. 
And fortunately, and, you know, this is a really important, because I played sports, there was always, like, a coach. Right. Or one of my friend's dad that would take the time, you know, because I was dying to go. But, I mean, I didn't know where I was dying to go to, but I, I knew I wanted to go fishing or hunting. You know, all that appealed to me. Right. But um, it might have been, like, once or twice a year. And, you know, I loved every minute of it. Right. So, you know, that fueled my passion. Um, now, I will say, supposedly, I caught my first fish in a diaper with just a hook, <laughs> you know, kind of deal. Um, but, no, you know, I, I was not the, the boy that grew up in the country and every right. single day of his life was out in the woods. So who was, I mean, did you have a specific mentor that kind of got you into it or were you kind of, uh, self-taught? No, I was not self-taught. Um, I, uh, my uncles that were on my mom's side, you know, whenever they would come around and talk about hunting, you know, uh, they would, you know, ask my dad, Hey, you want to go hunting? And then, you know, once he had me, he's like, well, you know, this is a chance to spend time with my son, you know, because my dad, if anything, he just hunted so that he could spend time with me because he knew I was going to go hunting anyway. Right. So we kind of learned together. Oh, cool. But, you know, just a kind of a funny side note, like if it was up to my dad, I think he would rather shoot the deer with paintball guns <laughs> and everybody have their own color. And when the deer come by, they'd be like, oh, I see that color. You know, that's kind of how he is. Yeah. Um, but uh, there were so many, you know, like, and it's so random, but, you know, like coaches. Um, even, you know, just, you know, the Lord put different people in my life that took that time, you know, to, to take me. Right. 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 And uh, so you, it wasn't just necessarily one person. It was a handful of people that kind of uh, were there as you progressed through, I guess, being a hunter, right? Yes, whether it's fishing or hunting. Um, you know, I had a bow long before I had a gun because, of, you know, the different places we lived, you know, a boy walking around with a gun would have been a problem. Yeah, but a boy walking around with a bow at that time, nobody thought that was a you know a big deal. Right, absolutely, absolutely. So, let's see here. I want to talk a little bit about like how old were you when you started hunting? Oh, I, I can remember when I was five, five, bribing, manipulating, doing everything that I could to get my uncles, you know, one of my uncles, to take me with him and my dad. And uh, I think they thought that if they put me through enough stuff, they would discourage me until I was older. Right. But, um, you know, they, they gave me this single-shot shotgun, obviously with no bullets. And I would walk around behind them. And at that time, I'm fairly certain that single-shot shotgun was uh, longer than I was. Right, right. And, you know, it was my job. They taught me gun safety. They did all that. Um, and... Uh, I, I don't think they ever gave me a bullet until I was about 10. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I would get a couple opportunities a year to go. I can remember. But, you know, they were, t they were laying a foundation. Right, right. I can remember uh, one of the first animals, and I think it was the first animal I ever shot with a gun, was a pheasant. 
And I remember going out with my uncle. I can't, I, I remember my brother was still too young to go out with us. Um, so maybe I was eight or nine years old or something like that. And my uncle took me out pheasant hunting and we jumped a pheasant and I pulled that, I picked that gun up and pulled the trigger and I don't even think it was on my shoulder. And I was looking, I don't even think I was looking down the barrel. I just kind of quick pulled it up and pulled the trigger and I got, I, I got lucky and I shot that pheasant. And that for me was like, it was so awesome that it turned mm-hmm. out like that luck. I think that was at, in some way, maybe a starting point for my love of hunting was, you know, having my uncle uh, take me out on that, on that particular pheasant hunt. But when, and you'll never forget that. No, never, never. Uh, so when, you know, fast forwarding a couple years, you know, when did you start getting serious? And I don't mean like, Hey, I have a bow now. I'm going to start shoot, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a bow hunter, but when did you start becoming serious about becoming a bow hunter? Okay. Um, I'll back up just a touch, but, um, I would say when I was 10, um, my very first shot at a deer was not with a gun. I had like a little Browning that was around 45 pounds. And, you know, I could shoot at targets all day long. And believe it or not, the very first deer I ever shot at, it was a, once again, it was a coach that took the time to take me out there. And, uh, you know, I eight point, you know, walked in. And I was so nervous. And I was, like, so beside myself. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure the deer had made at least one circle around my tree. And then I noticed that he was going to start to walk off. And I was like, I've got to find a way to shoot because I can't tell somebody, you know, this has happened and I haven't shot. Right. And believe it or not, I took my time. I aimed well and, uh, I missed it, went over the back, you know, yeah. and I couldn't understand why, but, and I was a pretty slow learner because believe it or not, I spent a lot of time missing deer yeah. with my bow before I finally figured out that, you know, the deer, you know, dropping on the sound of the, the string and, you know, not bending it at the waist. So I give a lot of hope to a lot of people because, I did not harvest my first deer until I was about 12. Okay. And um, Was that with a gun my, or a bow? You know, my, it was with a gun. Um, and the funny part about it is, like, my parents, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Right. And for them, my dad, uh, um, I'll back up just a touch. Around that same year that I missed the buck, you know, I remember dad taking me to a pawn shop and buying like a really short 20 gauge yeah you know so that we could have something to work with and you know believe it or not two deer walked out there and uh he caught the hammer back and said go ahead now shooting at just dry fires and like i looked at him like i don't think this is what's supposed to happen and he pulled it back <laughs> again and it dry fired and uh he says and i looked over there because he had a 12 gauge and I said, you know, I'm like trying to grab it. Right, right. And he's shaking his head at me like, there's no way you're shooting a three inch slow 12 gauge, you know? <laughs> and I mean, I didn't care. I mean, it could have been a cannon. I would have taken it, but he wouldn't let me. And he went ahead and shot the deer. So, uh, you know, I had to, you know, but that was another part of the growing experience. But when I was 12, um, and this was a big deal, my parents bought a 243. 
right. a rifle. And, you know, that amount of money, you know, at that time was, you know, that was not money we had, but they cared enough for me and knew how important it was. But when I went up to hunt with my uncles, I was such a bad shot with the rifle <laughs> that when they would put me on the range and practice, you know, like, um, I didn't realize it, but they felt bad for me and they were sticking holes in the bullseye <laughs> to try to build my confidence. And, but for whatever reason, after that day, you know, when it was time to go hunting, they said, we're going to put this rifle over here in the cabin. Here's a 12 gauge. It's a pump. And they put a box out there at about 15 yards. And they said, see if you can hit the box. And, you know, back then you could use buckshot. Yeah. And I shot, and of course the box filled with holes, and they're like, this is what you're going to hunt with. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, you know, I didn't know if there was some kind of strategy behind it that I didn't know. But um, at that age, um, because, you know, they, they felt confident in me and that they would take me to the stand, like a ladder stand or a box blind, you know. Right. Some, you know. right. And But their rules were, we put you here, and you don't go anywhere, and you don't leave this stand until we come back. And I'd spent, you know, some time hunting, and and they and I said, even if I shoot a deer, and they're like, especially if you shoot a deer. Well, believe it or not, where we were hunting, there was a bunch of duck hunters on the river, and as soon as they were out of sight, here walks this doe, like out of a dream, and she gets about 20 yards, and I shoot. Yeah. And um, she drops. So, like, from 1 o'clock all the way to dark, I'm sitting here staring at my first deer, like, you know, just right there in front of me. And But I can't get out of stand. And then, you know, to me, it, you know, like a little kid, it felt like, you know, the moon had done risen and everything by the time right. they got there after dark. And uh, they're like, come on down. And I was like, you know, and I walked down. And, you know, they're heading away. And I'm like, no, my deer's right over there. And, you know, they didn't even believe I'd shot my first deer, but my very first deer, I had to stare at for hours from a ladder stand. Um, <laughs> you know, so, but I, you know, nobody's ever going to accuse me of being a great white hunter. Um, right. You know, but it's a long road. So when, to answer your question, when did I very, you know, get serious about it? Like, I would say, here's an example. You know, I played... You know, like, I played a lot of baseball and basketball. Uh, my sophomore year, I'd never been turkey hunting or anything like that. And we would always have baseball practice before school. And if you missed baseball practice, you were going to run. Yeah. And I'm not talking about a little bit. Right. But uh, the day before turkey season, you know, I got some kind of calls from Walmart. And I went out there, and, you know, I'd always – something i'd heard about you get out there and make the call and listen for them well i heard all these turkeys gobble i was like oh i think i like this so i told my coach at that afternoon practice i said if i if i get a turkey and bring the beard uh to tomorrow's afternoon practice will you not uh make me run and he was a little bit of a hunter and fisherman he said and he said you ever turkey hunted before and i said no he said, yeah, I'll make that deal. And believe it or not, I killed my first turkey. <laughs> um, that next morning, here I am, you know, I've got three jakes at 10 yards, and I know nothing about turkey hunting. Right. And there, you know, and then I had about four or five long beards behind that about 25 yards. 
instead of shooting the long beards, I shot one of the jakes at 10 yards because I wanted to make sure I was not running. <laughs> but, you know, I would say probably when I started really investing a lot of time now, I played sports. Right. But, like, senior year of high school, I was playing football. When I leave football practice, I would go and play baseball, you know, at one of their leagues at, you know, a college not too far down the road. And, you know, I was doing that, but, like, you know, the next morning I would get up and go turkey hunting. Or, like, on Fridays we might have a away game. You know, we might not get back to midnight. And at that time I was in a hunting club that was about two and a half hours away. And when I get in my vehicle, instead of going to spend time with friends, I hopped in my vehicle. I would drive all night, get at the hunting club, you know, just in time, maybe to eat breakfast. And I would hunt all day and all weekend. Nice. And, you know, that's when I started, like, really, you know, just having that wheel that, you know, you know, whether it's hunting, whether it's fishing, whatever it is you want to achieve in life. Right. You know, once you have that wheel, you know, but that's when I started getting serious. And that's where your, fo- that's where your focus in life was. Yeah, unfortunately, I, you know, a lot of the sacrifices I made was, uh, I never really had too many girlfriends make it through hunting season. I would always warn them, and I would always tell them, you know, I like it a lot. It's great. I said, but when it comes time for when hunting season's here and it's getting close, that's where I'm going. Right, right. I said, you're welcome to be a part of it, but that's where I'm going. And normally uh, they would make it to about January. You know, our season ends at the end of January. And if they made it to Valentine's Day, they were so mad at me that – it was pretty much over by the end. <laughs> I tell yeah, you what, the the girl that I was dating before uh, my wife, uh, she she was there as I I guess started the rekindling process of how much I loved bow hunting, and uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, I I think I picked bow hunting over her, and <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, hey, yeah. But with my wife, before we even started dating, I sat her down and I said, listen, when it October and November get here, uh, you might be taking a back seat for a little bit. So uh, at least I was up front and honest with her and she respected that. And her, her dad is a big time bass fisherman. And he, yeah. and he, you know, he goes out fishing all the time. And uh, she understood because her dad was really passionate about fishing. So uh yeah she, she she understood that but as far as archery like bow hunting i mean you started off i mean when you were in high school is that when mm-hmm. i mean were you doing all this bow hunting then well the for alabama the way the season works archery season would open around about october 15th gotcha and then the gun season would come in about november the 20th okay so I always had that month to bow hunt, and I think to actually get my first deer with a bow. Um, and like I said, when I said I missed a lot of deer with my bow, even though I was only hunting a month, you know, before the gun season, you know, we're probably talking about me missing twenty plus deer <laughs> with a bow. You know, I only missed that one buck. You know, that was the only opportunity I ever had as far as, like, a lot of the rules and stuff. You know, the buck had to be this size or different things like that, you know, would just happen. But, I mean, I missed a lot of those. Right, um, right. 
but to get my very first deer with a bow, I actually had to finally make the commitment to take it during gun season one day. Right. And I got my first deer with a bow, you know, during gun season. And, you know, like that had been so long, you know, because I'd, you know, I'd been shooting a bow for a long time and I'd started bow hunting when I was 10. Um, you know, and I, I would say that it lit more of a fire, but the fire was already there. Right. Um, and to answer your question, five years ago is when I made the commitment that I finally got it in my head that all I was going to do was bow hunt. Right. Like, I mean, it, and you know, you have to like truly have that conviction because the first time you start seeing bucks chasing and doing those things and you know, you can pop them with a gun, you know, somehow that gun finds its way out of the, the cabinet, you know? Right. But, um, five years ago is when I finally did it. And, um, I've not picked up a gun since not that anything's wrong with the gun hunting, but I just, I love bow hunting. Right. I mean, that's what I love. Right. Absolutely. And how old are you now? I'm 34. 34. Okay. So you were 20, roughly 29 when uh, you said, I'm just going to be a bow hunter. All right, cool. Yeah. So, and I did not get my first buck with a bow until 2013. 2013. Okay. So yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, we're, we're running up on time here, but I want to end kind of generally speaking in the five years that you've decided to strictly use bow and arrow um how has your success been um and i know we're running up on time i had to change my perspective um because the years up till that you know i was able to harvest you know for this area you know some really nice spots with a gun right you know and um had started doing it consistently but once I started trying to do those same things with a bow in my hand, yeah, um, I was not, you know, you know, if you want to use the term successful, at this point in my life, I've actually got to where you think about it as achievement and it's a mindset. Right. Um, and you have to have the mindset about the process. And I know people are going to hate this because I'm from Alabama, but if you listen to Nick Saban or different people, you know, everybody thinks about Nick Saban and winning games. But if you listen to him, he talks about the process. And if you'll do the process, you know, the wins or whatever it is in life that you're trying to accomplish will be the result. And, you know, because I kept struggling so much in the beginning because I would set a goal and say, I want to get my first butt with a, a bow. And, you know, I would do whatever, you know, I felt like, you know, obviously legal, stuff like that. But I was not, you know, achieving that goal. But the problem was, is I didn't have a process. Right. I didn't have the mindset that I had to to just follow the path and do the things that I had to do to achieve the goal. Right. Does that make sense? Right. It's like, because, you know, it's real easy to sit there and say, gosh, I just want to go get my first boat with a bow. Well, unless you learn how to do the things that you have to do and basically what I boiled it down to and um, you've got to put in time work 
And then, you know, at some point you've got to put in money to achieve things. Right. Now, everything's different. You know, if you're willing to put in more time and work, then you might not have to spend as much money. Not whether you're talking about public land, private land, whatever. But I had to be, I had to get very intentional in what I was trying to accomplish. Gotcha. It was a mindset. Like, I had to, yes, I had to have that mindset. Because if I had all this other clutter and all this other, you know, other stuff going on, then, you know, you know, it, I would get away from the process. But as I started change, having a change of mindset, now I was forced to because I was not, you know, getting the results that I wanted. Um, but, you know, once I did that and started realizing that things are not really about successes and failures, they're more about the process and the experience, you know, because when I was younger, I was uh, quite a bit of a whiner. You know, every time adversity would come along, I didn't handle it well. Right. And, I, you know, several years, I guess 2013, I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Okay. I had no clue what it was. And I went from being in the best shape of my life, even better when I was playing sports, um, because I had been doing CrossFit for several years. And, you know, there. I, once that happened, I went into the, oh, poor me, why me? Right. And I've learned, you know, you know, by no other choice, that every single one of us has to go through adversity. Um, you know, and there's no sense in whining about it. Right. You know, you, you do the process, you do the things that you have to, and a lot of it is discipline. And you can't sit there and, you know, make excuses. And, you know, that's something I I did for a very long time. Um, my, but I, I know we're wrapping up. My very first book, i got to tell you the story. It was on public land, uh, right across from the house. Um, I've never gun hunted public land, but just bow hunt. And believe it or not, there are mountains in Alabama. Right. Um, and what makes, and I go, I go in and I hunt by boat because that's how I hunt the public land. Because you go in through the cliffs and you, the little drains, whenever it, it rains real hard on these cliffs and mountains, you'll get like this little tiny little drain, you know, have the rocks and stuff that go up. And I found, you know, just over the years, that's the easiest way to slip into these really tough mountain places or cliff places and, um, you know, go in by boat because all the other stuff, you know, people would have to walk miles by land. And I get in there and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty rut and believe it or not, just, you know, like a fantasy because I'd been hunting so long and never thought it would ever come together. Um, I get my first buck with a bow. Um, I actually made a good shot, but see, I'm colorblind. I'm red green colorblind. So, um, me tracking is always interesting. Wow. Now, when I was in South Carolina, I had actually got a beagle when I was younger and had trained it, you know, like on a leash to follow the blood trails. And I actually used it when I was guiding up there. But at this point, um, my dog had gotten too old. So I spent about three hours trying to find this deer 
and um, you know the deer had not gone very far and of course I'm thrilled to death and the funny part about this story is I've got to get it off this mountain and it's almost a straight cliff down this little rocky drain but I'm, I'm not worried about it you know too much I'm worried enough that you know like I'm using my pull rope and doubling it quite a bit in case I slip and fall so the deer won't sink you know to the bottom of the river right well, anyway I get to that last little part right before you get into the boat and of course uh, the pull rope breaks and I go diving into the boat and it's really deep at that bank I go diving into the boat and you know because if if it goes in the water it sinks you know it has holes in it and it sinks and um i caught the very end of like the g3 and i'm like laying over the boat just holding this deer you know because the rest of it's underwater right and i'm sitting there trying to find some strength to, to drag this deer back in this boat so my first buck that i harvested even after all that time could have sunk to the bottom of the river but somehow i managed to get it back in the boat but you know, those are all wonderful memories. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's the most important thing, man. I I, I uh, had I had a really good uh, day of shed hunting this past week, this weekend, and uh, it's like I'm looking at my wall full of all these sheds, and I can, like, I can almost pick out every shed and tell you exactly where I found it, what the temp, like, what the weather conditions were that day. Uh, if I know the buck or if I had past experience with that buck. So it's, uh, I think memories is, is why we do this, but I'll tell you what, Nathan, I really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast and, uh, and chat with us today, not only about that, uh, the research that you did, but the, uh, you know, sharing a little bit, uh, about how you got into hunting as well and be and BSing with us today. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Nathan for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for taking time to do that. Huge shout out to each and every one of you, as always. Thanks for tuning in and listening to the podcast, man. We are definitely growing. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you download, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or wherever you download your podcasts. Please subscribe, and not only are you getting the Nine Finger Chronicles, but you're getting Land and Legacy, and you're getting the DIY Sportsman, and you're getting Southern Ground, and you're getting Transition Wild, and, drumroll please, the Sportsman's Nation has launched its second podcast feed, and that is the Sportsman's Nation Big Game Western Hunting podcast rss feed and you can find that at sportsmansnation.com and dude i'm telling you here when when this is all said and done we're going to have a lineup for whitetails we're going to have a lineup for big game western hunts we're going to have a lineup for waterfowl and we're going to have a lineup for fishing and a blog with videos and once once this is complete it's going to be the, it's going to be like the go-to for the North American sportsman. I mean, it's not going to be just like people who write articles about 
fishing or hunting. It's going to be people who write articles, who actually live and do that. And not just like top 10 ways to kill a big buck during the rut, top five ways to kill, kill an early season buck. Strategies and tactics from people who actually live this life, you know, not just a writer, so to speak. So, um, that's the goal anyway. Look forward to that coming very soon. Huge shout out to all the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicle podcast. Exodus, Wasp, Gearhead, Ozonix, Lone Wolf, Bighorn Outfitters, Ripcord Archery. I tell you what, without them, this doesn't happen. So, well, it would happen, but a lot less, uh, especially with the wife breathing down my neck as much time as I spend in this damn chair throughout the night. Other than that, guys, I got nothing else to say. Make sure you're following us on social media. A lot of stuff to come. So if you haven't already, you need to be signing up for Instagram and following following uh, Sportsman's Nation and Nine Figure Chronicles on Instagram and long, along with all the other uh, podcasts that are on this network. And I think that's it. If you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.